The views and opinions expressed during this program do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of WHIO and Cox Media Group. This hour is sponsored by There is a Season. This is WHIO's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Dayton is our number one priority. You know that. And as news breaks, we'll break in anytime. Dayton's all news and talk is 1290-957-WHIO. There is a season Welcome to another edition of There is a Season with Bob and Gloria. This is the show about how we change, how we age, and how we care for one another. I'm Bob Wolf, And I'm Gloria Shanahan. Thanks for spending some time with us. So here we are following one of the most unusual, trying, tragic, and volatile years in our lifetimes, with most of us very much wanting to wash away the pain of 2020 while somehow looking for that light ahead and what many people still hope for a return to some sense of normality. Yes, and at least in terms of this past year's farthest reaching pain, the COVID-19 pandemic, while there have been some signs of hope, it looks like that challenge will go on for our nation and for the rest of the world for quite some time. It also seems that the societal unrest of the last year may subside. But on the other hand, it could very well not. So the experience for us has had a lot of variation. Not everybody has lost a job or a business, or worse, a loved one, but thousands and thousands have. We have seen widespread suffering and regulations and new habits and changes in lifestyle, much of this all discussed in major media or social media or on this program. So there's this kind of broad social experience or at least awareness of what we're all going through. But what about on a more personal level? What changes might we be going through in terms of our habits and daily behaviors, and perhaps more important, our relationships? What has changed internally for us, including how we feel and think? Researchers of past major social traumas, including wars, terrorist events like 9-11, financial collapses, and other health pandemics, study these events and periods in terms of individual and group behaviors, and also in terms of physical, emotional, and intellectual short- and long-term effects, including things like post-traumatic stress disorder. And now there's been an interesting article published across the pond, as they say, in the United Kingdom. It appeared in the newspaper The Guardian. The author is Paula Kakosa. She opens with a headline that is at once alarming and yet hopeful, and it's this. Has a year of living with COVID-19 rewired our brains? The pandemic is expected to precipitate a mental health crisis, but perhaps also a chance to approach life with new clarity. When the bubonic plague spread through England in the 17th century, Sir Isaac Newton fled Cambridge, where he was studying for the safety of his family home in Lincolnshire. The Newtons did not live in a cramped apartment. They enjoyed a large garden with many fruit trees, In these uncertain times, out of step with ordinary life, his mind roamed free of routines and social distractions. And it was in this context that a single apple falling from a tree struck him as more intriguing than any of the apples he had previously seen fall. Gravity was a gift of the plague. So, how is this pandemic going for you? In different ways, this is likely a question we are all asking ourselves. 
Whether you have experienced illness, relocated, lost a loved one or a job, got a kitten or got divorced, eating more or exercised more, spent longer showering each morning, or reached every day for the same clothing, it is an inescapable truth that the pandemic alters us all. But how? And when will we have answers to these questions? Because surely there will be a time when we can scan our personal balance sheets and see in the credit column something more than gray hairs, a thicker waistline, and a kitten. Well, actually, the kitten is pretty rewarding. Yeah, it would be, yeah. What might be the psychological impact of living through a pandemic? Will it change us forever? People talk about the return to normality, and I don't think that is going to happen, says Frank Snowden, a historian of pandemics at Yale and the author of Epidemics and Society, From the Black Death to the Present. Snowden has spent 40 years studying pandemics. Then last spring, just as his phone was going crazy with people wanting to know if history could shed light on COVID-19, his life's work landed in his lap. He caught the coronavirus. Snowden believes that COVID-19 was not a random event. All pandemics afflict societies through the specific vulnerabilities people have created by their relationships with the environment, other species, and each other, he says. Each pandemic has its own properties, and this one, a bit like the bubonic plague, affects mental health. Snowden sees a second pandemic coming in the train of the COVID-19 first pandemic, and he calls this a psychological pandemic. Eve O'Donovan, an associate professor of psychiatry at the UCSF Wheel Institute for Neurosciences in California, who specializes in trauma, agrees. We are dealing with so many layers of uncertainty, she says. Truly horrible things have happened, and they will happen to others, and we don't know when or to whom or how, and it is really demanding cognitively and psychologically. The impact is experienced throughout the body, she says, because when people perceive a threat, abstract or actual, they activate a biological stress response. Cortisol mobilizes glucose. The immune system is triggered, increasing levels of inflammation. This affects the function of the brain, making more people sensitive to threats and less sensitive to rewards. In practice, this means that your immune system may be activated simply by hearing someone next to you cough, or by the sight of all those face masks and the proliferation of a color that surely Pantone should rename Surgical Blue, or by a stranger walking toward you, or even, as O'Donovan found, seeing a friend's cleaner in the background of a Zoom call, maskless. And because, O'Donovan points out, government regulations are by necessity broad and changeable, as individuals, we have to make a lot of choices. This is uncertainty on a really intense scale, she says. The unique characteristics of COVID-19 play into this sense of uncertainty. The illness is much more complex than anyone imagined in the beginning, Snowden says, a sort of shape-shifting adversary. In some, it is a respiratory disease. In others, gastrointestinal. In others, it can cause delirium and cognitive impairment. In some, it has a very long tail, while many experience it as asymptomatic. Most of us will never know if we have had it, and not knowing spurs a constant self-scrutiny. Symptom checkers raise questions more than they allay fears. When does tiredness become fatigue? When does a cough become continuous? O'Donovan sighs. She sounds tired. This is a busy time to be a threat researcher, and her whole life is work now. 
She finds the body's response to uncertainty beautiful, its ability to mobilize, to see off danger. But she's concerned that it is ill-suited to frequent and prolonged threats. This chronic activation can be harmful in the long term. It accelerates biological aging and increases risk for diseases of aging, she says. In daily life, uncertainty has played out in countless tiny ways as we try to reorient ourselves in a crisis. In the absence of the usual landmarks, schools, families, friendships, routines, and rituals, previously habitual rhythms of time alone and time with others, the commute and even postal deliveries are askew. We're reading from the article by Paula Kokosi called Has a Year of Living with COVID-19 Rewired Our Brains? And it continues this way. There is no new normal, just an ongoing, evolving estrangement. Even a simple how are you is heavy with hidden questions. Are you infectious? And rarely brings a straightforward answer, more likely a hypervigilant account of a mysterious high temperature experienced back in February. Yeah, we're all still worried if those whom we encounter are contagious, whether they know it or not. The word contagion, it says here in the article, comes from the Latin for with and touch. So it is no wonder that social touch is demonized in a pandemic. But at what cost? The neuroscientists Francis McLone and Merle Fairhurst study nerve fibers called C-tactile afferents, which are concentrated in hard-to-reach places such as the back and shoulders. They wire social touch into a complex reward system so that when we are stroked, touched, hugged, or patted, oxytocin is released, lowering the heart rate and inhibiting the production of cortisone. Very subtle requirements, says McGlone, to keep you on an even plane. But McGlone is worried. Everywhere I look at changes of behavior during the pandemic, this little flag is flying, this nerve fiber. Touch, touch, touch. While some people, especially those locked down with young children, might be experiencing more touch, others are going entirely without. Fairhurst is examining the data collected from a large survey she and McGlone launched in May, and she is finding those most at risk from the negative emotional impact of loss of touch are young people. Age is a significant indicator of loneliness and depression, she says. The loss of connecting power of touch triggers factors that contribute to depression, sadness, lower energy levels, and lethargy. We are becoming a sort of non-person, says Perry. Masks render us mostly faceless. Hand sanitizer is a physical screen. Fairhurst sees it as a barrier, like not speaking somebody's language. And Perry is not the only one to favor the non-person clothing of, say, pajamas and lounge pants. (laughs) Somehow, the repeat wearing of clothes makes all clothing just feel like fatigues nowadays. They suit our weariness and add an extra layer to it. No element of COVID-19 has dehumanized people more than the way it has led us to experience death. Individuals become single units in a very long and horribly growing number, of course. But before they become statistics, the dying are condemned to isolation. We've talked about this before on the program, how an awful lot of people, you can't be with them, right, Right. when they're they're receiving treatment like that. They are literally depersonalized, Snowden says. He lost his sister during the pandemic. I didn't see her, and nor was she with her family. It breaks bonds and estranges people. This has happened on an individual basis, like we've described in hospitals, 
but it's also happened on a larger scale, like with 9-11. Yeah. The article goes on to say, if you know the literature on disasters, immediately afterwards, you get this altruistic community thing where you all have this sense of common fate, Mm -hmm. right? Says John Drury, a professor at the University of Sussex who specializes in crowd psychology. But you can't sustain that. Yeah, remember the pictures of New York City? Everybody was in it together and so forth. We were all right. New Yorkers and all that kind of thing. Right. But as time went on, that was difficult to maintain right. that Just sense. like now. I mean, look at what's going on. Well, a less tragic example of that is something like uh, what's happened with public dining, right? Restaurants are trying to carry on with multiple patrons using shower curtain dividers but it's still different. There's a there's a tension to dining that way. Everybody kind of comes in and says, well, we're all here together, but you're not really together, right? Right. It's yeah. still just different. Yeah. Feels, yeah. feels odd. Right. And we'll have more on this in just a moment. You're listening to There is a Season on AM 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station, 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to There is a Season, the Bob and Gloria Show, the show about how we change, how we age, and how we care for one another. I'm Bob Wolf, And I'm Gloria Shanahan. Thanks for being here. Well, if you think we've been through a lot already as a nation, scientists now wonder if all of this extended suffering is starting to actually rewire our brains how we think of ourselves, and how we will interact with others going forward. We're sharing today the article, Has a Year of Living with COVID-19 Rewired Our Brains? It's by Paula Cocoso, and this article appeared in The Guardian in Britain. And as we went to break, we were talking about the example of dining rooms uh, or going to the restaurant, how we have all these little cocoons of uh, shower curtains around tables. So supposedly we're together, but obviously we're apart. Anywhere right. you go, it's like that, right? I mean, yeah. you have little squares you have to stand on or tables are cordoned off and, you know, yeah. distancing yeah. is laid out for you. You can't be together, really. So it's really messing with us. Yeah. So now allied to the depersonalization is a heightened sense of individualism. It's a tough combination, though, to feel both more of an individual and less of a person We are no longer in it together in the same way. Now, what you can do and probably have done is adopt compensatory behaviors. The maladaptive of these will add to that lengthening social pandemic, the psychological aftermath of the first. In Scotland, for instance, substance abuse deaths have risen by a third. The British Liver Trust, which you had mentioned... uh, Has to do with alcoholism tracking. Yeah, they had seen a 500% rise in calls to its helpline. Domestic violence has also surged worldwide. But even the tiniest positive alterations to habit can be hugely effective. Fairhurst, for instance, wears more perfume and spends longer washing her hair, a direct activation of her C-tactile efferent nerves, she thinks. Her research data has shown that people who are less lonely are those who are grooming more. Snowden survived his isolation, intact partly thanks to a Zoom group of school friends who meet online each week despite not having gotten together for 56 years previously. Wow. Wow. Dixon did art with his children. Drury, a very functional person who would walk only if he needed something, now walks for emotional and mental health. We had pandemics in the past and we are all still here, said Fairhurst, to adapt 
is to survive. To notice the adaptations, however small, is to appreciate humanity. So will the pandemic alter us for the long term? O'Donovan in San Francisco, and I know there's a lot of names in this article. We're just reading from this thing here, but we'll tell you how you can find this article after the show. O'Donovan in San Francisco, who has for years studied post-traumatic stress disorder, believes an increase in the incidence of PTSD will probably follow COVID-19. It is also likely that COVID-19 will challenge the criteria for diagnosing PTSD. While 20 to 30% of those who go into intensive care units will later experience PTSD, what of those who fear for their lives in previously innocuous situations, such as the grocery store or on public transportation? Might PTSD be triggered by a close stranger's uninhibited cough? There are people who recovered from SARS in 2003 and were still being treated for PTSD more than a decade later. We have a lot of work to do, Donovan says. And there's more we've got on this article about how a year of living with COVID-19 has rewired our brains. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to There is a Season on AM 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. WHIO. This is WHIO's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, this is Rush Limbaugh. This is my home in the Miami Valley. Dayton is our number one priority. You know that. And as news breaks, we'll break in anytime. 1290, 95.7 WHIO. Welcome back to There is a Season, the Bob and Gloria Show, the show about how we change, how we age, and how we care for one another. I'm Bob Wolf. And I'm Gloria. Thanks for being here with us. Well, if you think we've been through a lot as a nation, scientists now warn of a second pandemic, and we're not talking about COVID. At least not yet. Let's all pray for this to leave us. Absolutely. The second pandemic is what they're referring to as a PTSD or a post-traumatic stress disorder psychological pandemic. Yes, most of us have been introduced to these four letters in the context of returning war vets and the horrors that they faced. PTSD has also been linked to other particularly traumatic life experiences that people have gone through, such as cancer, loss of a child, assault. You know, we know our COVID nurses are suffering already. Terribly, terribly, yeah. For today's show, though, we're sharing the article, Has a Year of Living with COVID-19 Rewired Our Brains by Paula Kakosa which appeared in The Guardian in the United Kingdom. And in that article, the author is concerned about PTSD becoming the second pandemic that may follow COVID-19. The author also believes that there may be a positive that comes from all of this, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But from the article, Paula Kokoza writes, There is the possibility that the fear of COVID-19 may outlive the worst of the disease itself. Drury, one of the people she cites in this article, one of the researchers, thinks people will easily relearn how to behave in a crowd. The big question is for how long they will fear crowds. After the London bombings of 2005, the terror threat level was lowered and people resumed their travel habits, he points out. But this summer, when the British government urged a mass return to work, many resisted. They believed there was still a danger. What follows the pandemic will depend on how safe people feel. And all the while, the more systemic inflammation people have because their biological response to stressors is activated, the more sensitive they will be to perceived social threats. No wonder, then, that for Thomas Dixon, the emotional historian, the pandemic is akin to a world war in its emotional fallout. We will have, I assume, he says, a global recession, 
there is going to be serious suffering and inequality and poverty. It is a world event with big emotional consequences, and it seems to me that in times of adversity, people's emotional repertoire changes, he says. He thinks that a more resilient and perhaps more reserved emotional style might evolve out of the pandemic and its aftermath. I think we're also going to see, you know, when people talk about what the effects are going to be, certainly there have been economic effects felt in this country. And people have talked about how there may be many more deaths around the world, not directly from coronavirus, but from things like starvation because of an interruption in the food supply and all those kinds of things. So our experience here, even in the States, is going to be different than people in other parts of the world. And even just in our own communities, you know, there's the haves and the have-nots, obviously, all the time, but even more so now. Now, one of the other researchers cited in this article, uh, Snowden, says there are silver linings in something uniquely bad and dark. Maybe as a result of COVID-19, we will transform our healthcare system so that it pays proper attention to mental as well as physical health. Maybe this pandemic will help us rethink what medicine is for. And maybe a little like Newton's Orchard, the pandemic will give us a chance to see things we have seen many times before, but with new clarity. It would seem unlikely that every person who works solely in an office will spend every working day in one post-vaccination. Changes to road layouts and car exclusions are underway in many cities, with Carlos Marino's 15-minute city concept gaining critical airtime from Paris to Buenos Aires. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. In late 19th century England, the telephone was introduced in hospitals to help people with scarlet fever communicate with their loved ones, and it caught on. With coronavirus, FaceTime and Zoom have offered the same solace of remote connection, although when some meetings shift back offline and Zoom is no longer there to arbitrate on conversational turn-taking and remind us of people's (laughs) names... We may have to relearn some communication skills. You know, who the people who move seamlessly through all of that stuff are the kids. You know, when they use the Zoom, I have seen children just be able to kind of switch back and forth between that, listening to music on a headphone, talking to somebody in a room. It's because that was their world more so than it was for us prior to the pandemic anyway. Yeah, yeah. Very. Uh, Not so the, sure it's a good very thing. Very facile. Yeah, it's, it, you know, maybe it's the, uh, maybe that's part of the silver lining, right? Right. Uh, in, in, in a case like this, it seems to benefit them, right? Right. Another person cited in the article is Alexander White of Johns Hopkins University. And uh, this person says, we can use the pandemic as a galvanizing force for change. Now, he argues uh, that he would like to see universal health care in the United States to prevent a lot of the worst health care outcomes that come from inequality, but also to minimize the economic, social, and health inequality in the first place. The conditions of, uh, of this are, are certainly there after something like this. People will rec- reconsider all different ways to do medicine. And maybe that is the point, you know, to see these times as creating the conditions for new opportunities. The challenges will be many, the fallout painful, but there is an opening for previously unthinkable change, not only to the structures of societies, but also in countless small ways, privately and personally. We have lived for months at close quarters with ourselves. We will deepen our appreciation of some of the simple things we have missed and some of the pleasures that have helped us through, even if it is only the taste of a new season apple. And in some measure, we will know ourselves better. 
All of this has come from the article by Paula Kokoza, and it appeared in The Guardian. You can find it at theguardian.com. came out in December of 2020, so it's just come out. And the article's title is, Has a Year of Living with COVID-19 Rewired Our Brains? And I know uh, in the course of you know preparing this show, you and I were talking about how a lot, a lot of the behaviors that were highlighted in here about people wearing the same clothes uh, and going through certain routines is true. You know, you, you kind of have like the sweats that you wear around the house or pajamas or something if you're not going out and seeing anybody. And a lot of people have been doing that. Right. And what lies beyond that, just wearing the same clothes, I think has also um, heightened the sense of awareness of, well, what do we really need? I know for myself, I'm like, you know, gosh, I don't really need that many clothes. You start to realize what you really do need. So for me, it has been a, you know, a reduction of, you know, all the things I thought I needed in life aren't the things that I really do. But what's been highlighted are the lack of the relationships. You start to focus on what's really important. Right. And and uh, and even there, that's been a difficult thing because, you know, FaceTime and Zoom and these kinds of things are tools that we can use. But we've even said how sometimes the, the personal stuff, it's very difficult because even people you love and you care for and so forth, you're constantly thinking, well, where have I been? Who have I been with? Who has this person been with? COVID-19 has seemed to kind of filter down to, uh, maybe a word is uh, contaminate everything. Everyone's yeah. thinking about it in that context. So not only do our clothing habits change, but how we're interacting, how we're getting together. This seems to be sort of like this this little review we have to do, you know, Yeah, mentally and internally. That has to affect us, you know. You go over to someone's home who you believe has been following protocol and is careful, so you think, okay, this is safe. There's still that maybe little bit of hesitation that wasn't there before. You know, maybe the, or do you hug or do you just kind of elbow bump? But yet you're there and you're going, should I be here? Well, wait, it, it just, you just don't know where it ends and where it can begin the sense of normality. And, and even if you try to uh, establish understandings with family and, and close friends about how you're going to, you know, get together and what you're going to do and how big a group you're going to, uh, uh, get together at a single time, regulations and laws notwithstanding, right? Right, I right. mean, people say 10 is the limit. Is 9 that bad? Is 11 that bad? You know what I mean? But, yeah, but because if one person is very asymptomatic, right. does it doesn't one matter or what, eight matter? Right, it doesn't matter how big the group is. Or you're in a situation where you feel like it's contained and then suddenly somebody drops by or you find out another person's going to be there. Do you suddenly say, oh, um, well, we're not available then. We can't come over because of that. We've all attached a certain comfort level to other kinds of interactions, right? And we're, we're expecting these things to be sort of codified and written down or mutually understood, and they change. They That's just, what I was going to say. And it changes, too, you know, our feelings. And I think some of that depends on how, I hate to use the word desperate, but we feel somewhat desperate for social and for relationship with others. And so you sit and play this game with yourself, and none of us the entire time are 100% comfortable. And it's no, we're not. an uncomfortable way to live. And here's another dynamic that I think you've seen and I've seen too, especially when you talk to um, older people. Uh, a lot of folks have kind of taken this attitude, not all of them, but a lot of them have sort of said, listen, we've been through a lot of stuff. We've been through past pandemics. We've been through wars. We've listened to politicians and experts talk for decades about this and about that and so forth. And they have a little bit more jaded view of the whole thing, even to the point where some will say, 
I'm going to go soon. I've lived my life, right? I'm, something is going to take me. And while the horror for us of, oh my gosh, this person could be suffering in a hospital with no one around them and it could be a terrible death for them and all, they're not necessarily looking at it with quite as many emotional uh, attachments. Right. They're sort of saying, I'm willing to risk it in order to have that touch. I'm willing to still maintain my life. I'm not going to be confined by what some politician says. And I'm not even going to confirm. And I'm not seeing people being not reckless. even the politician, but just what the pandemic dictates, the science. They're still not willing because they don't know. They'll say, "I don't know how much time I have left." But if if it is short, I'm not going to be isolated. Right, and it, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're being careless. I think I think a lot of people are still out there wearing masks and trying to do the safe thing. Uh, but you can see how it really sticks in the craw of a lot of people, not just the elderly. Um, but as a group, I've seen that a little bit more where they've sort of said, you know, we've seen stuff come and go. And uh, and, and and this is one more thing we'll have to endure, but we're going to endure it our way. And and just look at the whole economic side of that, too. You know, all these restaurants and businesses suffering. I mean, at some point, we must go on. Right, right. Uh, because uh, we can't all hide it. There's a lot rock. of ways to die. Yes, yes. We'll have more right after this. You are listening to There is a Season on AM 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. It's an Ask the Expert weekend on Dayton and Springfield's 24-hour news, weather, and traffic station, 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Welcome back to There is a Season. I'm Bob. And I'm Gloria. We've been talking today about the article, Has a Year of Living with COVID-19 Rewired Our Brains? I think in many ways it has, Gloria. Uh, The article is by Paula Cocosa, and it was found in The Guardian. You can find it at theguardian.com, and it happened, I think, or it came out on December 13th, I believe, in 2020. A great thing to think about, and maybe, uh, you know, they talk not only about a lot of the negative things that have happened, but some of these positive opportunities that come from this. Right. And and something that I noticed too, you know, we may think, oh, it hasn't rewired my brain. It probably has, and you don't even realize it, right? We go through our days not even realizing things that we have changed. Earlier in the article, we talked about people coming out of this maybe being a little bit more reserved. Is that because we've been alone more? You know, we're, we're quieter. We've lost some of our, our interpersonal skills, right? Right. We've lost them. And maybe some of us have even started to just sink within ourselves a little bit more. You, you, If you're you one of those people who's used to talking or maybe unconsciously uses up more oxygen than the average person in a room. Yeah, you know, you, you know, would know, Bob. I would certainly. Hey, that's the pot calling the kettle, you know. Teasing, um, of but course. you might go into a situation saying, "Maybe I don't want to be blabbing as much," or you know, especially if somebody backs up from you. Yeah, or you just you're talking too much to be quieter because we're alone so much, right? Yeah. Well, that's where you can find the article and have a discussion with your family about that. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Uh, we'll tell you how to email us here in just a moment. We've got some other programs coming your way here in the next several weeks and months. And what are those? Well, one of the things that we'll be sharing with you would be the science and art of critical thinking and ethics. And these things, you know, asking ourselves, are they being taught anymore? Right? Also? Yeah. Another show would be conversation starters, how to get people talking or how to get talking yourself. You know, not so easy if you're not a radio blabbermouth, Bob. And we're also going to talk about, are we a melting pot? We've obviously come through a very tumultuous time in our country. We've also talked a lot about immigration here in the past. 
um, the, the melting pot concept is learned when you're back in school, right? And a lot of times that's the first place we heard about it. Um, but are we moving more toward a collection of soon to be warring tribes? What does the future hold for all of us in that? All of these things, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our ideas and what you hear here on the show. Just drop us a note to Bob and Gloria at thereisaseasonshow.com or check out our In Touch tab on our website. And that'll do it for us today. Remember to seek grace in every step, live with purpose, make this an everyday count, and never regret growing older. It is a privilege denied to many. For my dear friend Gloria Shanahan, our terrific producers, and everyone who makes the show possible, thank you for your time, attention, and interest to what we do here. We hope you'll join us again soon. You've been listening to There is a Season on AM 1290 and 95.7 WHIO, Dayton's News and Talk. Have a blessed week. WHIO Dayton, WHIO FM Pleasant Hill, a Cox Media Group station. Powered by Back to Business IT. Take care of your business. We'll take care of your IT.